Father God, would you please be with us this morning? Would your spirit be at work in our hearts? Would you open our eyes to your word? Would you please give me the right words to say? And would you be active, Lord? Would you be uh, glorified? Would you train us as a people for your name, for your purposes? Would you show us what we need to see in this psalm this morning? Amen. So we're, we're carrying on our Advent series this morning, and we're looking at some of the psalms in the run-up to Christmas. Last week, Andrew did the kids' talk, and he asked them what a psalm was, and one of them said, it's a sort of prairie song. Now, I quite like that. Um, so today we're going to delve into this one, this prairie song. Uh, we're we're going to look at what it claimed and what it meant in its original context. And we're going to look at what it would have done for the people of Israel. But then because it's Advent, we're going to step back and we're going to put on our Advent glasses and we're going to look at it again with the lens of the New Testament. And we're going to think about what it claims and means and does for us in our context. And then we're going to sing and pray and worship together. Because that's the point. And that's what it should be moving us towards. So let's look for that. Look at um, verses 1 to 3. What would this have meant for Old Testament Israel? Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. We have a God in Psalm 98 who has shown his hand. He's revealed himself to his people. And they can put their fingers on the historical events that they can see and marvel at. And in those, they can see his character. And they can see what he's like. And therefore, why they're safe with him. And so, the psalmist calls for them to rejoice. What mighty deeds is he talking about? Well, remember, this is Old Testament Israel. And as Dan Brown was talking to us a month ago, looking at Psalm 96, um, this would have been sung from early on when they were little more than a tribal kingdom under David, surrounded by enemies. But then it would have been sung later, under Solomon's reign, at the heyday of Israel. Almost certainly this was sung as the ark was brought up into the temple. And it would have been sung year on year after that and week in, week out in the nation that the Lord had established and sustained and called back to himself again and again. And so this is a national song. And because of that, it's almost certainly referring primarily to the great works that they'd they'd seen the Lord do in the Exodus establishing his nation. Verse 1, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. And the sense there is of God's mighty power, his right hand, and his absolute purity and goodness working together in tandem with no contradiction. As he rescued Israel from Egypt, as he purified them with Passover, as he brought them through the sea, To be a people set apart for him under his law. 
And, and this is no rule Britannia. This is no arrogant national song. It's not because they're wonderful. Look at verse 1. God worked salvation for him, for his purposes. Right back at the formation of the nation of Israel, in Deuteronomy 4, Moses gives the, the nation this wonderful speech, doing something very similar to Psalm 98, reminding them of their history and where they've come from. And at one point he tells them to marvel at God's reasons. In Deuteronomy 4.34, he asks, Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation, like the Lord your God did before your very eyes? The Lord has worked their salvation for him, not because they deserve it. And then verse 2, The Lord has made his salvation known. And he's revealed his righteousness to the nations. And again, I think Deuteronomy 4 is a good place to look at. Moses there says to the people in verses 10 to 14, Remember the day that you stood before the Lord at Horeb. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens, with black clouds and deep darkness. Maybe that's ringing some bells with what Dave showed us last week. But they know that the Lord has revealed himself in great majesty so that his people Israel can see and can teach it to their children and their descendants. And so they can take that knowledge of the Lord to the nations. That was the plan. And what did the Lord reveal at Horeb? Beyond the fire and the glory was his law his covenant with them, his character and his faithfulness. And so Psalm 98 verse 3, Israel are to marvel at how the Lord has been consistent in his character, faithful to them through generations, in full sight of the world around them. They've got a God who's revealed his hand in their family history. And so verse 1, they are to sing a new song to him. I think that's a a fresh song every morning. In the same sense, in Lamentations, the the author of Lamentations writes in chapter 3 about how the Lord's great love and compassion never fail. and They're new every morning. He's appreciating that each day. So would this song, the new song. God's people are being urged day by day to keep alive their appreciation and understanding of what their God has been like. They've got a God who's shown his hand, but also a God who's got more to do. So verse 9, they are to rejoice and sing because the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so this is an Advent psalm. It's a waiting psalm. It's a forward-looking one. Some Jewish tradition has this as the tenth and final psalm that will be sung after the Lord's final act of salvation. So as they sang this, they were looking forward to end times. When the Lord's purposes would be complete, when he would have finished calling them his nation to himself. 
in that light, verse 7 can be read as referring back to the creation story. In Genesis, God created seas that were teeming with life and were good. And the sky and the land were filled with creatures. But since the fall, the, the sea and the wilderness had become scary to Israel. Untame and unsafe. And here in Psalm 98, they sing of a future where the whole creation will once again be brought into unity. Pulling in the same direction, praising the Lord. It's a forward-looking psalm. We see that as well in how it doesn't yet match their day-to-day life. Dan Brown showed us a few weeks ago how, how crazy Psalm 96 is. The outlandish claims that it makes when it's compared with historic reality. Well, it's the same here, isn't it? The fragile nation of Israel occupying a postage stamp of territory in the Middle East, surrounded by older, more fearsome cultures. Perhaps the revelation of justice and faithfulness in verse 2 and 3 would have seemed unreal to normal Israelites as they face their day-to-day struggles. Look at the history books, and we know that the nation of Israel faced plagues and hunger and famine and drought and war. Or even more of a problem, corruption amongst God's people, kings and officials who didn't manifest the Lord's faithfulness. Are verse 2 and 3 real, they could ask? They talk about the nations having seen the Lord's righteous salvation, but, but Israel was beset around by pagan enemies. With relatively few converts to Judaism. The song doesn't yet match their current situation They're longing for, they need the Lord to come and establish his purposes. But given what they've seen of his holiness in verse 1, they know that he will be true to his promises. And given what they've seen of his might, they know that he will come. His Messiah will arrive. And when the Lord comes to judge, nothing's going to hold him back from establishing his people. His nation, his righteousness. And so Israel rejoiced. They had a God who had shown his hand, and a God who had more to do and who they were confident in. And I I think that is simply the message of this psalm. Marvel at this God, rejoice in him. But I've only really touched on half the verses. I do recognize that. And and that's because the Psalms are doing much, much more than just giving us information and theological statements. They are the songbook of Israel, not just informative tracts. So these prayer-y songs, they were intended to be sung corporately, to be read as we did. To be used regularly. So that as the people of Israel went about their daily lives and, as happens, maybe found their history and the confidence they could have slipping from their minds. Returning to the Psalms and singing them together would train them and give them the reminders they needed of where they'd been brought from. Or maybe as they were struggling with those mismatches between the promises of God 
and then the reality that they saw. Singing these psalms together would equip them with the prayer that they needed to be able to articulate that contrast and what they longed for. Or perhaps when their ambitions and their appetites went astray and got caught up in in what's available right now. Singing something like Psalm 98 together helps to reform their appetites and to develop in them that godly hunger for the promise of what's to come. The Psalms are are formative. For the people of Israel singing these together, the Psalms would have equipped them to pray, they would have directed their emotional responses, they would have formed their appetites for God's ways. And so it's always worth looking for the emotional thrust of the Psalms. Look for the emotional punch here in Psalm 98. I think it comes in three building waves. It's a command to rejoice, isn't it? It's a reminder of what they've got to rejoice about, of who's going to be involved. But crucially, it's about how big the promise is. Look at verse 1. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he's done marvellous things. And maybe Joe Israelite reads that and chews it over a bit and says, yeah, okay, I can see that. I can assent to that. It sounds about right. Job done. And the psalmist says, no. No, that's not it. You're not getting it. It's not you saying, yeah, okay, God's great. It's not even just you and your friends in the synagogue joining in. Verse 4. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. And maybe Joe Israelite's thinking, oh, okay, that that is a bit bigger. That sounds pretty good. You know, verses four to six sound like some sort of national celebration. Representatives of all the nations coming together at the temple in Jerusalem. It, It sounds pretty great. I can get behind this. Think a world fair or the euphoria of the 2012 Olympics. And the psalmist comes back a third time. No, that's not it. Verse 7. Let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Do you see how big it is? Rejoice, Israel. The Lord is coming. That's the push. And so week on week, year on year, as they sang this psalm, it would push against their their natural tendency to forget God and blend in with the nations. It would challenge them to remember a God who's shown great things and promised to do more. It, It would remind them of their history and their future. And it would form in them that appetite for these promises. The longing for verse 9. And a hunger to rejoice. As they waited in their advent. 
So what about us in our Advent? We get to put on our New Testament specs. And and as ever, our privilege is that as we read the Old Testament, we get so much more. So we get to read verses 1 to 3. And then in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph present the baby Jesus in the temple. And we can read there of Simeon who's waiting there. And he takes Jesus in his arms and he praises God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. It resonates, doesn't it, with verses 1 to 3. I mean, he is, he's literally singing a new song as he marvels at what he sees. For us, what Israel sang of for centuries, what they pinned their hope around, we have seen. We've seen how at Christmas the Lord has done a marvellous thing. He, he took on frail human flesh so that he could walk with us, and be known by us. Emmanuel, God with us. He, he revealed his righteousness, verse 2. And then we get to turn our eyes further ahead to Easter. And we see how verse 1 plays out in, in an even greater way than the Exodus. The Lord's right hand, his mighty power and his holiness, they worked salvation together at the cross and at the resurrection of Christ. So that in full view of Gentile nations, his Old Testament covenant was fulfilled and superseded with an even greater promise. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. And then we get to read verses 4 to 6. And where perhaps for Old Testament Israel, that felt unrealistic sometimes. Maybe now something twigs at the back of our minds. Maybe we look to Pentecost in Acts 2. Where the whole world is gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. And they each hear the news of Jesus in their own tongues. Or maybe we look further ahead and and go towards Revelation. In Revelation 7, John writes this. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. With our New Testament glasses on, we've already begun to see verses 4 to 6 coming true. They're more than just aspirational thinking. I think even here this morning, what have we got? We've got a couple of hundred, mostly Gentile folk come together in a church thousands of miles and thousands of years away. but joined in this same worship. And we're just a tiny part of a global church praising his name day after day. And that's only a pale early crop of what heaven will bring. 
Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. But friends, it's even bigger than that, isn't it? We get to look at verses 7 to 9. And maybe at that stage, Romans 8 resonates in our minds. Paul writing about creation, awaiting in eager expectation, frustrated and yearning for for this, for God's plans to come to fruition. Maybe we look forward again to Revelation and the promise yet to come. The new heaven and the new earth, a, a recreation. Eden but more. And we hear the words of Jesus in Revelation twenty-two, twelve: Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what they've done. And his church replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Psalm 98 is an Advent psalm. It reminds us that after the years of waiting, the Lord revealed his salvation and righteousness to Israel and to history. He's shown his hand. He's revealed his purposes in Jesus. It reminds us that we're still waiting in eager anticipation of more. He will return. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So what does the psalm do for us? I think the emotional punch of the psalm for us is that, friends, we have got really good news. I assume we need to hear that. It can't just be me that, that, like Old Testament Israel, needs constant reminders. We lose sight, don't we, of everything that God has already done for us. We get our eyes filled with the world and we chase after satisfaction or we mourn the things that we lack and we forget what we have in Jesus. Or we simply forget that he will return and the difference that that makes for us now. But this psalm shouts that we've seen marvellous things and it encourages us to sing in response. I assume we don't always feel like that. Dan referred to the election. Perhaps after Thursday you feel that your team didn't win. Maybe you feel that you didn't even have a team. Perhaps you're anxious about the next few months and years. Not unreasonable. Perhaps like many of us, you are mourning this week with Peter after Gwyneth's death or for other family and friends. Perhaps you're you're conscious that the next few Christmas weeks will be hard, whether that's because of isolation or family tension or, or other reasons. Perhaps you're struggling with 101 other things, illness, mental health, the stress of work or the absence of it. Or the painful family relationships or the yearning for family. Or friends who are unsaved or, 
or the pain of recognising your own apathy and slowness to change. And the push from Psalm 98 isn't to ignore those things and be happy. It's not to sweep them under the carpet so that we can paste on a fake smile. It's to lift our eyes so that we can see them in context. So that we can be reminded of everything that Lord has done. And so be confident of all that he still promises. So we're not to be a people who aren't concerned for the world and worried about politics. We're to worry for the world, but know that we have a greater sovereign than any prime minister. Whose plans won't be thwarted. We're not to be a people who won't grieve. We will. But as we grieve, we look forward to a day when Jesus will reunite his people. Where he'll wipe every tear-stained eye. We're not told not to struggle with all those difficulties in life, but rather that Jesus has gone before us in suffering. And his resurrection is the first fruit of new life, freely available to any of us who choose to follow him. Our God has shown his hand. Friends, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvellous things. I take it, that does mean we need to sing together. Just as these prayer songs in the Psalms were given to Israel to be sung corporately as part of their daily, weekly, yearly life, to teach and form them and equip them and guide their emotional, emotional responses. Well, in the same way, the New Testament teaches us very clearly that we, we need each other, don't we? We need you here with us in church, and you need us. The New Testament teaches us that we're, we're to meet as often as possible to study his word and to pray and to sing so that we're doing this, filling each other's eyes with the vision of Psalm 98, teaching and gladdening our hearts as we worship him together. So that's what we're going to do in a moment. Matt's going to come back up and lead us and the musicians will lead us and we'll sing joy to the world, echoing verse 4. And then see what a morning and we'll, we'll fill our eyes with the ways that he's achieved his plans. And we'll long for more. But first, let me pray. Lord God, train our hearts to sing new songs to you. Fill our hearts and minds with the marvellous things that you've done, where your right hand and your holy arm have worked your salvation. Let us rejoice because you've revealed your salvation and righteousness to us. And in covenant faithfulness, you've remembered your love through generations, even to the ends of the earth. By your spirit, teach and equip our hearts to, to worship you, to shout for joy to you, and to long for the day that you will return.
to yearn for your righteousness, your kingdom. Amen.